everybody. Uh, good evening. Good morning. Uh, where, from where, whatever time it is, wherever you're listening. Um, I am Josh, but not the usual Josh. Uh, for the next two weeks, I'll actually be taking over the hosting role for B&Q. So really excited and really honored about that. But don't worry. Uh, I'm you're, still you're, here. Yes. <laughs> A Josh uprising. <laughs> Uh, so yes, I am. I am JP. I'm hosting the show for the next two weeks, and I'm really excited to do it. Uh, we're going to talk about two uh, very different topics from one another. Um, next week, we're going to talk about some of the uh, the greatest accomplishments in in nerdy television. Uh, but this week, I am really excited about this topic. Um, we're going to be talking about whether or not a machine uprising is a legitimate concern of ours, uh, and so. With me, uh, our usual host of B&Q, Josh. Hello, everyone. And I'm really excited to be joined by Callie for this one. Hi, guys. Callie's a scientist. She knows things. <laughs> I, po- I push buttons and see what happens. Yes. <laughs> Hashtag coding life. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, Matt is unfortunately not with us today, so we don't have a sponsor. Um, but Josh, uh, before we actually go right into the bu- the, the business of this episode, uh, do you have any announcements to make? Uh, just that we want to thank whoever has given us our first review on iTunes. It was a five-star review, and it said we were funny and sufficiently nerdy and had a good variety of topics. So thank you to that individual, who, whomever you are. Your username is longer than the Konami code, but thank you very much <laughs> Uh, for giving us that review. Uh, we really appreciate it. And if you feel so inclined to make us more visible, if you think the whole world needs to hear the wisdom of B&Q and every single bad pun that I make, uh, please go to iTunes or your preferred podcast purveyor and give us a review and a star rating. The more we get, the more likely it will be that it, B&Q will pop up on a regular podcast page for those users who are browsing and don't think to search for us. So we really appreciate it. Back to you, JP. Absolutely. And I, I, I would say that based on that one review that we got, I think we're exactly hitting the mark we're going for. So bullseye for us. Bullet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, as I am temporarily taking over the show... Uh, I guess I'll be doing the big nerdy recommendations for the next two weeks as well. Um, one thing that I am a big fan of is retro video games. And though usually uh, the big nerdy recommendation is a little bit more obscure, um, this time I'm going to go for one of my favorite video games of all time. Actually, legitimately my favorite video game of all time. Uh, I'm going to talk about Chrono Trigger for the Super Nintendo. Um the reason why I'm going to recommend this is because I, the dystopian future is what just about the entire basis of the storyline of Chrono Trigger is focused on. Um, these, for, for those of you who maybe have not played the game or are not very familiar with the story, uh, it, it circles around a, a group of kids that end up accidentally stumbling through a time warp and going back 400 years in time to a different time in their kingdom. Uh, They're from the year 1000. They end up going back 400 years to a time when their kingdom was at war. And as as the story progresses, they keep accidentally falling through more time warps and end up in the future where humanity is at the brink of extinction. There is no food available. All plant life has, has died. The only thing keeping them alive is a machine that they can they can instantly recover energy like they had a full night's sleep, but it does nothing to satisfy their constant hunger. So it's a life of misery, though the the few humans the few humans that are left are still alive. Um, the uh, the machines completely own the land, and any human that dares to step out into the wild world is instantly a target for the machines. One of the uh, one of the three kids happens to be very good with technology. Even being from the year 1000, she's still able to access the main computer system. And they were able to pinpoint the exact time that the apocalypse happened, and they got to watch the destruction of the world. And so, with the the newfound power of time travel that they have, they have vowed they're going to do everything they can to try to stop that from happening and save the future. And because of that, I chose that because the storyline seems to be very relevant to what we're going to talk about here, which is whether or not 
a machine uprising such as the one in the story of the Terminator is a legitimate concern. So, um, anybody else have any thoughts on that? Nope, no, just kidding. Um, okay. I, I think, at least with machine uprisings, to me, it all falls on um, the ability of the... from Because as a coder, my thing is, you have to think about the ability of the developer to actually... Um, make a program that can work independently of itself. And yes, we have a lot of in- innovation with machine learning and um, neural networks and you know IBM Watson and things like that. But at the same time, those things are still dependent. If somebody puts an extra decimal point somewhere or forgets to put a semicolon somewhere, um, you, you, you destroy the whole algorithm. So I feel like the apocalypse is more likely to happen because of an accident, like, like a debugging error, than actual design and, and intuition and, and machine learning on the, the robotics part. So, okay. so it, I, I think it comes down to human uh, human error. Right, and, and they say that machines are only as smart as the people that make them, and if the people that make them are smart enough to, you know, not make them sentient, then you'd, you'd think right there that there's no way that you could intentionally create a machine uprising. Is it fair right. to say that? Yeah. I, I would say that. I would think it'd be more along the... If Did you guys watch Westworld? Unfortunately, I have not. Josh, have you seen that? I know the story because I follow Crichton, but I, I don't have HBO. So. Okay. But I, I know oh. the story, and I, I, I know I've been following along. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of the issues that came with the uprising of the, of the cyborgs came with a code push that, that corrupted basically the core the core application and it allowed them to break those rules of robotics and the rules of that they had in place because somebody eventually I don't want to spoil anything but somebody made an error in the programming and it was a it was a bug more so than an intentional use case so just for structural reasons are we now out of the nerdy recommendation and into the the meat of the topic. Yeah, that was that was a pretty bad segue. I apologize. <laughs> Just for our listeners who might be a little confused, this is not all in Chrono Trigger, as yeah. amazing as a game as it is. Isn't there a sequel called Chrono Cross? Or... Yes. Okay. Um, it's, it's, I can't remember if it's a sequel or a prequel, but they are related in some way. You know, but to to go back into the meat, I think Callie mentions a a bug causing robots to behave poorly. And that's mm-hmm. the first thing I wanted to introduce in our main talk because I want to talk about 2001. Okay. And the both the book written by Arthur C. Clarke and the movie directed by Stanley Kubrick, uh, the iconic image of that movie is the HAL 9000, the mm-hmm. computer that says, I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. So people who have a know of 2001 but haven't watched the film closely or read the book might just think that the robot is homicidal for no good reason maybe it's a uh, rampant uh programming is just a, a malevolent thing but it's not uh so the problem with the hal 9000 is that it was programmed to be able to carry out its secret mission uh finding the monolith outside of either jupiter or saturn and the coders did not give it any sort of parameters for what it it could not do in the pursuit of its mission. So when the astronauts kept trying to learn more information, Hal decided the only way to c- complete the mission was to get rid of the extraneous parts, namely the people. And getting rid of the, uh, the people on board was the only way to actually get to the monolith and initiate communication. So HAL 9000 wasn't homicidal because it had emotions or anger. It was homicidal because of its programming. It was a fault of not putting a parameter in. And essentially, it's a the absence of what we'll get to later with Asimov's laws on robotic behavior. So I agree with Callie that in the event that a robot or a computer is given code that we don't really know what the consequences will be of that code. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the unintended spiraling where the program is doing what you, we have told it to do. But what we have told it to do is so far beyond what we thought it would do that we can't rein it in anymore. And right. that might be where we go with AI and that might be what happens when AI starts taking over. Right. Um, the the other part of that with with, you know, the 
what happens when they go rogue is if if a developer is so smart to make a to make an AI that's that sophisticated that it's a risk and 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 assuming they make some kind of uh, they're going to probably assume that they're going to make some kind of mistake along the way, which means they're also going to put in some kind of kill switch that will also deactivate the robot and make or a a safe escape route. Um, most most coders develop a test framework, and when something fails that test, it will it'll just kill the program. And I, I feel like a developer would also have a kill switch in case the worst thing happened. You know, like at what point will it be so advanced that we can't do we can't? There's nothing left to do that we can stop the machine uprising. Well, JP, what at what point would we no longer be able to stop it? Well, um, if we follow the uh, the storyline of the Terminator, the the point at which it became impossible to pull the plug on Skynet was when Skynet became fully self-aware. Uh, the, the, it, the story, the, the development of Skynet is a little bit, I, a little bit ambiguous because any, any storyline that involves time travel has a warped time timeline, mm-hmm. a very inconsistent one as you follow this, the, 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 the flow of the movies. Um, the Skynet initially was, intentionally developed to be the most sophisticated defense system in the entire world. And it was given the ability to learn and, and, uh, and, and develop on its own. And eventually on its own, it developed full sentience and then launched all of the U S's nuclear weapons on Russia. Russia fired back immediately and boom, judgment day, 3 billion lives have ended. Now in the story of Terminator two, after they they stop the events, after they stop the attempt to assassinate Sarah Connor in, in Terminator One, um, Terminator Two rolls around and you find that Skynet was still developed on purpose and Judgment Day still happens on the exact same day as planned. However, it was it was developed by a guy that had he did not know what he was getting himself into by developing such a such an advanced program. Um, he was given some stuff he didn't he. he he didn't ask where it came from. They wouldn't tell him where it came from. He just needed to replicate that incredible microprocessor that was inside of the first Arnold Schwarzenegger's head. And uh, and that was <laughs> destroying that and the entire Cyberdyne Systems building is, it became the entire basis for Terminator 2 Judgment Day to actually stop Judgment Day from happening. Um, and, when, and when they did, uh, and, and as, as the story goes on, after... Um, if the Judgment Day doesn't happen in 1997, uh, John Connor kind of breathes a sigh of relief, but then co- still constantly watches his back because he does not believe fully that he stopped it from happening. And it turns out he was right because then the story of Terminator 3 comes around and Skynet, Skynet still came to be. Uh, however, Skynet activated itself. Skynet was, was, was completely out of the human's control in terms of how much power it was gaining over the infrastructure of the entire world. It was it started off as some mystery virus and then and when the humans greenlit Skylit uh, sorry, when the humans greenlit Skynet to um to, to finally come on, they just gave Skynet full power. They didn't realize that the virus was actually Skynet trying to uh to take over the world already. So um, what we learned from Terminator 3 was that Judgment Day was inevitable, and it it was going to happen whether or not uh, John Connor was successful in, in any of his missions. So that that of course brings another interesting question. Is never mind. Um, oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> so suspenseful. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. The question has no answer, and the answer has no question. <laughs> Basically, yes. no. So, I guess the, the question circling around whether or not Skynet um, coming to power and taking over the world is possible is simply based on um, it, it, even if you give artificial intelligence the ability to learn, can it develop sentience? Mm-hmm. I guess is where is where I would go there. Well, uh-huh. that's a, that is the million dollar or billion dollar question, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because if I mean, I am of the opinion that if something has artificial intelligence at the same level as Skynet, 
then I don't see any reason why scientifically, philosophically, or any other Lee that you can come up with, I don't see why AI wouldn't become self-aware. At least aware of the fact there are they are a computer program based on coding that someone else has done. At least the first one that's, that becomes self-aware would have to be thinking that way. Now, if that one spawned others, then you could have some interesting dynamics in play. Of course, this, uh, some of our favorite science fiction works over time have always thought the best thing to do is to make artificial beings believe they were, in fact, normal, organic beings. Mm-hmm. And, and they're self-aware, right. but they're not aware of their self, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so that's a possibility, too. I, I just don't see how you can have that much intelligence and not be self-aware. I mean, some studies are showing that dolphins and gorillas are self-aware to an extent. Mm-hmm. So I don't see how they AI. But, Callie, you, you you work with computers more than me. Do you agree with my assessment? Um, I haven't, I haven't come to a, a good conclusion. My question keeps coming back to the underlying architecture of the technology, you know, first of all, when you, if you go back to, to T2, um, was it Dyson? Is that the developer's name? Oh, I'm going to, I cannot remember <laughs> off the top of my head. I think I, I want to call him Papa Pope, but that's <laughs> watching scandal too much. Um, but I think it's Dyson when he's making, he's trying to reverse engineer the microprocessor. I think one of his biggest challenges, at least from my point of view would be how do you get your hands on material that is that is an alternative to something that's so futuristic and so advanced and to make these AIs that are so intelligent that they're aware of themselves how do we make sure that the hardware isn't a limitation on their ability to learn at the same time how how much how much resources do they need to be able to store and save and process that information um and and at that point do they start stealing those resources from other other computers um so to me, it goes back to, do they even have the resources to pull off that level of intelligence? The second question I always ask is, um, why why do AIs get such a bad rap? Why do robotics get such a bad rap? What makes them seem, what what makes them shoot the missiles? What makes them kill the humans? What makes them a violent, what, what makes them something to be afraid of? Is that something put on by humans? Is that something they naturally develop? Is it because we fear people being too logical and not, uh, showing emotion. Why do we think that if there is an uprising, that it would be a bad thing? Well, um, I, I think the the reason why uh, a lot of us are brought to uh, potentially fear an uprising is because of well, it's <laughs> circular logic, definitely. But I, I think these movies actually put that fear in us. Um, it turns going going back to Terminator because I'm going to use that a lot because it's my favorite example. Um, it's a well-told story and one that, aside from the whole uh, having to come back in time naked thing, it's it's actually a feasible storyline that a machine that becomes self-aware would then immediately see humans as the enemy because the humans would get scared of a self-aware machine and try to pull and try to kill it. Um, and that would be the shot heard around the world in the war versus in the war of man versus machine. Uh, and, 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 and I mean, going back to 2001 A Space Odyssey, that, that also kind of put the fear of um, AI in us as well. So Yeah, precisely. I think it's the same effect that Jaws had on sharks. Yes, yes. There's, a, there's a problem with sharks, but you didn't have mass reporting of sharks, you didn't have mass hysteria of sharks until the story of Jaws. Mm-hmm. And even now, people overinflate the degree to which shark attacks occur. Do they occur? Absolutely. Yes. Do they occur every time you go to the sh- go to the beach? No. 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 Uh, so, and most sharks don't want to have anything to do with you unless you look like a seal. So, pro tip: don't go seal cosplaying at the beach. Uh, unfortunately, there's not really <laughs> wait a pro the tip. the musician or the animal. Both. Okay, got yeah. it. No face tattoos, got yeah, it. Yeah, unless you can fly like an eagle, don't be seal. Um, <laughs> into the sea? Yes. No. Uh, so you know, when you were talking, Callie, all I could think was I, for one, welcome my new robot overlords. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, honestly, if you could get a world where computers were not malevolent, it might be run better. 
in some ways because you know resource allocation wouldn't be influenced by petty greed uh there is actually one area where that's actually occurring already in some states in the u.s districting of congressional and legislative districts is drawn by computer program Mm -hmm. by law not by any human to avoid uh impropriety Mm -hmm. in how to allocate representation so i there are some areas where i could see technology and ai helping us out a bit then again there are some areas where i think Maybe not. <laughs> you know, if we got into the Skynet level, it's it's scary. And I think maybe, you know, to safeguard against it, now is a good time, JP, for me to talk about Asimov's laws. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah, make uh, us feel a little bit better. So Isaac Asimov, who is one of the godfathers of robot science fiction type things, who wrote iRobot uh, before Will Smith decided to make it all cool-like. Uh, uh, Just but, do it! <laughs> Isaac Asimov's rules date to 1942, the short story Runaround. And there in the story, it's from the 56th edition of the Handbook of Robots from 2058. But science has actually taken these laws and applied them real, realistically, even though it was originally written for fiction. Law number one, a robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Law number two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. I call this the genie law because he can't hurt people either. Mm. Law three. Or Terminator 2. That's or true. the Terminator from Terminator 2 couldn't kill. A robot right. must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Now, later on, Asimov added the fourth law, which is also called the zeroth law, because it's the most important of the four. A robot may not harm humanity or, by inaction, allow humanity to come to harm. The distinction Mm -hmm. being that, whereas in the first law, it's specific to specific human beings, individuals, this refers to actions that would devastate humanity for example under the initial three laws if a robot were to construct a plant to manufacture equipment that created so many greenhouse emissions that it would destroy the ozone layer in two years that's not a problem under the first three laws because he's not actually harming any beings any individuals but with the zero with law in place you wouldn't be able to do that because it would ultimately damage humanity at large if asimov is correct and we can apply these four laws to the creation of artificial intelligence then we ought to have nothing to fear Uh, but some experts including stephen hawking believe that it's simply impossible that we could limit artificial intelligence with three rules i mean take for example the fact that we have laws against homicide but there are still humans that commit murder correct so the jury is still out on whether or not Isaac Asimov's three or four laws, more uh, more correctly, would apply. And I don't want to be the first person to try to figure that out. Well, so I have a question. Okay. What is he has these laws, but usually our laws have some some kind of consequence. What is the consequence of breaking those laws? That's a good question, and I'm not sure of the answer. Um, I've read some Asimov but not a lot of Asimov. I'm pretty sure that in iRobot, when a robot doesn't follow the law, they face deactivation. But doesn't that, at the same time, keep them from protecting themselves, which then they must fight back to do? Doesn't it put them in, like, this continuous... Well, no, because the third law says that you have to protect your own existence so long as it doesn't conflict with the first and second law. But the second law overrides it. If the second law says you must deactivate yourself, you have to obey it. Of course, so, the so what happens, obey it at all. Why can't a robot just run away so that it doesn't have to face punishment, but still not harm a, a human again? It certainly could. I mean, that's the reason that a lot of scientific experts think these laws are nice in theory, but difficult in practice. Because if you've created an artificial intelligence that is... Abil- has know, the ability to make its own decisions. Exactly. You can make your own decisions. It's not. It's no longer in an if-then programming scenario. It's no longer confined to the scenarios of Java, C++, etc. It has the ability to think outside the code, and they don't have to go by the laws anymore. Right, and if 
it, it almost makes a catch-22 in that if they do abide by the laws, then they probably aren't sentient and have true intelligence because they're still, they still have rules to follow, even though we do too. But at the same time, if they have true sentience, then they have the ability to break those laws and they're almost a null effect. Precisely. The fact that you can still obey the laws with 100% accuracy means you haven't truly obtained artificial intelligence. So when you are, have the ability to break it, that's when we have the uprising. Indeed. So going back <laughs> to JP's originally point, Asimov's laws may seem nice, but I don't think they protect us worth squat. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with that too. I mean, look at... Uh... It, although it's not definitely not a, a machine uprising to the point of Terminator, but um, I don't know if, if any of you have seen Chappie. Oh no! Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the it's by the same director who did District Nine. Yes, yes, and Elysium. Um, yeah, uh, Chappie um, is the story of one robot that gets its own consciousness, and he absolutely at times had no qualms about harming people. Uh, and he was quite good at it, if I might say so myself. Um, but even even the police force that was the the robot police force that was still under the control of a central server run by a human being, um, even they absolutely you know fired shots at humans when when they weren't complying with the orders to uh, to surrender. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean. I, I, I don't I'm not going to say that those laws are, are a joke, but um, it's, it's too easy to spit in the face of them for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a joke. I think they're if we could find a way to impose those laws on true AI, then we would be fine. The difficulty is those laws assume that they can't break the code. But real intelligence isn't limited by code. It has uh, the definition of artificial intelligence is the ability to expand its own intelligence beyond its program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, to use a Star Trek example, JP, it's like the V'ger probe. Voyager <laughs> didn't start out as it's not well, in real life. It's not a sentient probe. But if it were to ever become V'ger and make people disclose the information, yeah, because that that was the yeah. primitive direction that it was given was just to. Go out there and gather information, and when when it became sentient, all it well, wanted to do it was said, learn report things. Back to its creator. Remember, yeah. close the information and report it back to its creator. Its creator happens to be human, and it needed to fuse with humans, which is why to it report tried back. to kill everybody. Exactly to report back. Again, not homicidal, but it's murder. Following its following its programming. Precisely. The the best way that it can figure how. Right. The DECA unit and the ILEA unit must be conformed. <laughs> I just don't understand why I don't blow all the... We just blow it all up. Whenever it goes rogue, just blow it up. <laughs> what if it controls the weapon system? That would just blow, get messy. Blow up the weapons, then blow it up. Save one and blow it up. Well, then that, that's another uh, question that... Because I've seen experts and, you know, I, I mentioned experts because I've looked a little bit into the, uh, the real life beyond our favorite nerd scenarios... And a lot of experts say we're going to have true AI, human-level AI, by around the year 2040. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's a famous futurist, says we're going to have the singularity of technology by 2027, where humanity will be able to merge with uh, computer technology and human consciousness will be able to live forever inside the cloud or something very much like it. Like River Song? Exactly. So we are getting to the point now where this is no longer an issue for science fiction. It's an issue for science fact. And experts are almost split evenly as to whether or not AI is a danger or is a blessing. And I hate to use the word blessing because most of the experts probably wouldn't be religious. But whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing for society. And some experts have actually said that we should intentionally dumb down as a society. Not in terms of our intelligence, but we should intentionally stop using any sort of smart computers and go back to like circa 1995 and not go past it. I think the die is cast and we can't go back to that unless we had we had no choice. Mm-hmm. But the fact that some of the most prominent experts have suggested that path makes me a little concerned because that to avoid really rad- to avoid creating pure AI, go back to the level of basically Windows 95. First of all, never. No. Second of all. Oh Second god. All, that that runs into the same logical flaws that happen with time travel and Terminator is eventually something keeps it going. Eventually something kicks up the wheel again and it starts rolling in the same direction it was before. Certainly. Uh, 
yeah. community cannot decide by fiat to stop progress. Somebody's going to do it. Yeah. Um, that your your topic though does bring up a couple um, themes I keep hearing in the news and podcasts, um, which is um, robot proof jobs. Um, there's there actually is a robotics uprising fear in terms of um, employment in the blue collar industry in terms of job automations through the use of robots Um, and not, you know, they're not necessarily sentient or anything, but the fact that there are, there are tools and machines that can do a process better than any human, which again, this, this comes back every couple decades when some new innovation comes about and technology is cheaper, but people are afraid that they're going to lose their job because some robots going to take, take it away from them and then they're going to not going to have anything to, to, they're not going to have the right skills to be able to go on. So what about robot apocalypse in the form of automation? The indirect apocalypse, the apocalypse by a thousand uh, factories closing. Right. You put out all these jobs, but then there's no one economically, there's no one left to keep economic, really the economy going. As a quick aside, Forbes magazine actually has a, a database on their website where you can go and, put in your current occupation and they tell you the percentage of risk of a hundred percent automation within 30 years. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, JP, what were you going to say? So, um, that, that is a very interesting question about, uh, automation taking over. Um, it would be, it would be like, it would be the, the, the robot bloodless, bloodless coup, I guess. Uh, if you wanted to put a label on it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, there are a lot of sectors where that is already happening, if if not already, you know, a, a complete transition. I mean, you look at how many how many human hands were involved in manufacturing automobiles just like 30 years ago, compared to how many human hands are involved now, and how many robot arms are involved now. You know, they and in something like building a car robotic precision is, I mean, it's lower upkeep than paying someone's salary and medical benefits. And it's also, that's that's a place where you want every car, every product to come out exactly the same level of quality every single time. Um, However, you look at some other areas, other other, uh, well-known blue-collar areas where you could have machines taking over, like self-checkouts at the grocery store. Some people love those I, I confess, I love those things too. But that's because I'm only ever getting like maybe five things at a time at the grocery store. I'm just the guy that I I, I don't go once a week. Um, I, I go like multiple times a week and get you know stuff for the next few days. Um, but a lot of people, a, a lot of a lot of people. Now I worked in a grocery store for years and years before finally getting a, the job I have now. Um, and I find a lot of people resist going to self-checkouts and will never go to one if there's an open, like, human cashier available. Right. right. And, yeah. And because um, people, some people just like the human touch. They like to walk up and they, they, they like the cashier to ask them how they're doing today and did they find everything. Um, and, and that's that's just going to be different tastes. And I, I think because of that, um, I don't think human cashiers are going to – ever really become a thing of the past. Uh, some th- There will be that one company that will try to force it on people, but I would call that a very risky move, and I think it would ultimately be an unsuccessful one, in, in my opinion. I can tell you the name of the company, actually. It's uh, Colleen's company, Amazon, uh, <laughs> because they actually have a program now, I think it's called Amazon Go, where... The stores they have in Seattle, they have a few in Seattle, I believe, as pilots, where there is no such thing as a cashier or checkout at all. Mm-hmm. Everything in the in the store is monitored by codes and scans and audio or sorry, optical recognition, and you basically just put what you want in the basket and walk out the door. Yeah, that's it. Um, and they, they mark when RFID you leave. Tags. They, exactly. So when you leave, they they take it out of your bank account. That's it. You never see anybody in there. The only employee they have to have is who restocks the merchandise. And who uh, does maintenance on the equipment. It's a very, very interesting question, though. Like, what happens if you have an insufficient balance or your card gets declined, the card you have on file? That is a very interesting question. I have to assume that there must be security 
on call, but I, I don't know the answer to that. Probably the oh. same thing that happens when you forget to pay a bill. You get a call. You overdraft. Switch your, yeah, you get overdraft, or you you can get the option of switching your card, and then if you don't, you get sent to a collector. And I don't know how you keep people from stealing over and over, but I guess you would probably need to put a security guard in there. There's got to be some like, – I don't know all the details, but the fact that some companies, yes, are already trying to do something like this. I agree oh. with you that, that it, it's bad to do – I don't think it's ever going to go away completely – but some companies know that there are enough people, especially in younger demographics, who are, are not uncomfortable with using technology, who would be fine with doing it. Uh, we tend to avoid them, avoid automatic checkouts if there are people open just because we want to make sure they keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so I, I feel like I almost feel a moral imperative as a friend of labor to go through the line with a person. Certainly. Rather than the one that. that's open. But – that's just a personal preference. I mean, I'm I'm probably up on the politics end. I'm very much a big person proponent of big labor, so that's probably why I do that. Uh, but I understand, you know, that if you lose a job there, the theory in economics is if you lose jobs as cashiers, there's going to be other jobs opening up to be the person who maintains the equipment or something. Of course, the problem is... Of course, tra- jobs training and skill training exactly. and having the ability to go back. And a lot of economists are saying that this time there won't be the same amount of jobs opening up because all the blue-collar jobs are going to be snapped up by the (laughs) machines, which is why a lot of economists and both conservative and liberal economists are now advocating for universal basic income. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like saying UBI. uh, Yeah. Not to be confused with UTI, which is a totally different thing that shouldn't be universal. No. Uh, No. But UBI – in, in certain Scandinavian countries, they've already done it, but the the most common proposal I've seen in the United States is everybody, every American every year gets $12,000, period. And that's your safety net. They take away all of their welfare programs, mm-hmm. and you get $12,000 a year on top of whatever else you happen to make. And that's your safety net, so in the event you do can't get a job and don't have the skills to get one, you can at least make it scrape by while you get the education necessary to go be the person who maintains the robots. And I I don't want to dive into a completely different conversation, but then one of the cons to that is how do you keep people from not just working at all and just figuring out a way to live on the the $12,000 a year or hustling to get more money through some other means? Precisely. There, there are very much cons on the system, but there is a lot of theory on it. I encourage you. There's actually a podcast. I'll do a slight recommendation called Intelligence Squared, and they recently had a, a debate, the U.S. version of Intelligence Squared on universal basic income mm-hmm. earlier in April 2017. I encourage our listeners to go listen to it. It's about an hour-long debate, and you really learn about the pros and cons very well. They have um, a union leader, a libertarian professor, and two former advisors to the Obama administration, and they're really knowledgeable, and you get the pros and cons of the policy. So I would encourage people to check that out. But going back to the the robot question, if we're having to handle all of these other sub-questions, that must mean that we truly are concerned about the possibility of an uprising, even in the, even if it's the bloodless coup variety. Right. I, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that. Uh, but I will say one, one area where I'm definitely not too concerned about robots taking over completely um, is another area where I, I think some people are. Uh, for example, fast food could very easily be automated. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that is I don't think that robotic precision has any has any place in food preparation. Don't get me wrong. If it's all automated, I know it's going to be safe to eat, okay? But when I order a Whopper, all right, every time I order a Whopper from here on out, all the onions and lettuce are going to be in the same place. It's always going to be the same amount of perfectly spread mayonnaise, perfectly spread ketchup. It's all going to be just perfectly optimized. You know, four little pickle chips on there, and it's going to be... The same burger every time. What I like about my food is that it's all the perfect imperfections. Yeah, sure, it's annoying sometimes when you open it up and the guy put too much ketchup on it and it's dripping everywhere. But it's a different experience and it it creates a different taste every time. And 
that's that's what I want in my food. I don't want my food to be boring. I I, I, I want it to have a certain human flavor to it. So I, I think mm, so. tastes like humans. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> the I, other yeah. white meat. I caught I caught myself on that one. No, I didn't. You guys caught me. People. People yeah. solution in the basket. Coming here. <laughs> coming soon to Burger King. Soylent Whopper. There, there is um, a Soylent drink that is supposed to logically be a third of your nutritional um, intake a day, and if you think drink three a day, you'll have met all of your um, nutritional uh, requirements. But it's Soylent, uh, what, like with a Y. Would would that would that vary from person to person? They have like a men's version and a women's version, but that's as complicated as they get now. Maybe oh, chocolate, okay. vanilla. All right, all right, interesting. So. Uh, as much as I agree with you that you want imperfection food, I have to put on my historian hat for a minute. And say Absolutely. I think that a lot of people would disagree with you because the whole reason that McDonald's became the mega corporation that it is is precisely for the opposite reason of what you want. They gave everybody the exact same burger at every location throughout the country. So when people started going on road trips in the 1940s and 1950s, they didn't go to the mom and pop diners anymore. They went to McDonald's because they knew they would get the same exact burger they could get back home. It's the same reason that Howard Johnson and later Holiday Inn became the hotel of choice because it was the same room everywhere you went. Hotels didn't have specific kind of changes in rooms anymore. I mean, think about it. When you go to a hotel now, unless you're at a boutique hotel, you expect a basic structure. That's a creation of this standardization um, of the 40s and 50s. So, and it went to stores as well. That's why you started getting the Sears, a Roebuck, and JCPenney, and later Walmart and Target. Everyone expects the same thing everywhere. And now, throughout the United States, with a few exceptions that are regional, like, for example, you can't get sugar, sweetened tea outside of the U.S. South, but that's a, that's a minor thing. For the most part, a McDonald's in Raleigh, North Carolina, a McDonald's in Cleveland, Ohio, and a McDonald's in Anchorage, Alaska are going to taste exactly the same, and that's why they work. I agree with you, JP, that I want difference, but the, the economic history suggests people don't care. They'd rather have the knowledge that it'll be the same. Sameness is comforting. Yes. Okay. My my only my only counter argument to that is the emergence of um, essentially I burger boutiques, for lack of a better term, uh, emergence of of local restaurants becoming more popular, in, especially in urban areas, and also the emergence of craft beer over the past you know decade or so. Um, the, it, it's true there are a lot of people out there that, that are going to get their, their same thing, um, and that's what they want. But I, I, I do think that there is a, a, a market out there for human food service that is not going away ever. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. I just I don't know about the sameness. But I definitely think, especially in the past decade, the artisanal trend is, is still going on. Certainly. And, and the fact that the most successful restaurants now are the places like Chipotle where everybody's dish will be a little bit different. We get the same. The, it's everything is separate but equal. Pretty much. I'm not touching that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forget. They can't see me. So, okay. I will. You can, t- you can cut that joke out. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I think I know what you're referring to. Um, yes. But no, I, I, so maybe <laughs> I think you're right in the fact that craft beer, you know, craft furniture. Cheese. Yeah. Pe- craft cheese is also very. People are just trying to get more customized things. So maybe that trend is going back on it, but well, I don't know. Well, maybe the automation could still play a, a factor where you have you have the robots and you can make requests. I mean, they would be sophisticated enough to say, I don't want pickles or I don't want mustard and ketchup. So you can still have what you want, but have it be efficient and, you know, safe for the most part, unless they're the maintenance guy just gets really bored one day. <laughs> so the uprising won't be the robots themselves it'll be the disgruntled maintenance guy who puts in who's actually a coder and can go in and make everything go crazy yeah again right. it comes back to human human fallacy and human really human boredness well that's why in the fallout games the mr handy i kept you know if you had, if you had somebody that the repairman was a homicidal maniac they could easily turn that thing into a destruction and right. use it's like shears to start chopping off heads of everybody in the neighborhood 
Um, he's whacking and yakking and whacking. Yeah, the song from Fallout 3. Chopping that meat. Uh, that's <laughs> where we're going. <laughs> Has a very Sweeney Todd feel to it. Although, I, I, there's one apocalypse, or one robot uprising that I want to talk about we haven't mentioned yet, and that's Battlestar Galactica. Um, because, uh, and actually, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about BSG in the next episode. Oh, hint. Uh-oh. Um... <laughs> But the Battlestar Galactica uprising is all about the fact that robots are going to kill humans because humans tried to kill them first. And it goes back to what you said earlier, JP. It's all about survival. And if the robots feel that they cannot be let alone and given the chance to survive, they will fight back like a cornered animal or, frankly, like a cornered person. It's, it's, it is a basic tenet of intelligence and of life itself to fight for survival. I'm not saying what the Cylons did in Battlestar, especially the remakes, are justified. Of course not. The fact they destroyed almost everybody and left only almost 100,000 survivors out of, I think, 14 or 15 billion souls in the 12 colonies uh, is a tragedy and is one of the darkest ways to ever start uh, a major series, especially one that's a remake of 70s, a 70s series that's full of bright colors. Um, but it's still possible. It, I think it's still possible. And I wanted to mention the Cylons because I know some people out there are thinking, what about the Cylons? And uh, <laughs> uh, yes, it's there. And it shows you humanity survived, but in a decimated form. And I think it's just like the Terminator franchise in Terminator 3. Humanity will survive to some extent. They'll always... Not always. I can't say always. There will more than likely be some survivors of some sort of AI uprising that's negative. It won't be a complete annihilation unless we did it to ourselves through, like, nuclear Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Still wouldn't be pretty, though. Oh, and by the way, damn those toasters to hell. (laughs) (laughs) It was a brave little toaster. Um... (laughs) Brave little Cylon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't... I, honestly, I'm not a, a uh, Battlestar Galactica buff. Um, I guess, so I, I don't have much to add to that statement besides, yeah, we live on, but we need to be careful how we live on. It, But it does, it makes me wonder, you know, what are, what are the warning signs of a robot apocalypse? How, how could they have avoided, you know, pissing off the Cylons to start off with? How could they have, have seen that they, there was some kind of retaliation coming forth? And I feel like this episode will be remiss if we don't bring up Alan Turing and the Turing test, Absolutely. which um, very, very quickly states that um, the is just the ability to tell whether or not a uh, an artificial intelligence is real. And the test is if it can deceive a human being into thinking that it's a real person, then it has passed the Turing test and therefore would be considered, you know, certified, not certified, but official artificial intelligence. Um, the movie, Ex Machina kind of plays on that on that assumption that this developer or this this entrepreneur this genius is developing all this AI in the middle of nowhere in this really expensive house and he he invites basically he just invites the the most sophisticated coder um, um, time after time to see if his AI can trick the developer into thinking it's a real person um, and and perform the Turing test on on the using the developer. Um, and he uses that feedback to, to make, you know, more and more advanced models of his tests. And the problem is when it actually passes the Turing test is when, when shit gets real. So what are, what are, if we had to give a piece of advice for people to, to, you know, survive the robot apocalypse or to find signs of the robot apocalypse, what, what would you give? Well, can I ask one clarification question? Sure. To our knowledge, has any human-generated computer been able to even come close to passing the Turing test yet? Oh, I think Watson's probably the closest, but um, I don't... I, but I, it, it, like, I don't think Watson passed. No. It's close. We're almost there. No, I don't think anything's passed it. Um, not, to, not to our publicized knowledge. <laughs> not Right, not that we're aware of in... Uh, yeah, not, it could be something in, like, in Bill Gates' office or NSA or the Kremlin that's passed, but who knows? Right. No, we're still safe. So, so yeah, what can we do to prepare and to make sure we don't fall victim to a robot apocalypse? I think I'm going to borrow the strategy from The Next Generation. Uh, there was an episode in Season 2, I remember this one, JP, where they had to deal with an anomaly 
and they kept it was uh, and Captain Picard went back in time like 37 minutes, and they realized that you can't avoid it; you have to go straight through it. You can't right. go around it; you have to go through it. So I say meet it head on and be ready to deal with the robots as equals. Give them equal rights under the law. Treat them like you would treat people, unless you're a sociopath and just to stay out of the discussion. Because if you don't, because robots and AI are the definition of logic to the nth degree. And if their logic parameters say the only way they can survive in a thousand year time span is to eliminate humanity, they might. But if humanity gives them no reason to fear and no cause to suspect that they would be terminated, then their logic would say that humanity and them could live a perfect symbiotic relationship. I don't see any reason why humans have to antagonize people. Maybe that's because I'm an optimist at heart. But I have to believe that that's the way through. Yeah, so that certainly worked for the Futurama universe, for example. Um, they, uh, I, it's very clear that robots are not only pretty self-aware in Futurama, but that they also exist peacefully with humans um, sure, you have some underlying desire to kill all humans, like Bender has, but he never acts on it. He, he loves he loves fry. He loves people. He loves who, beer. Who else he is can... he going to scam? Yeah. <laughs> he needs the fleshy marks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bite his shiny metal ass. <laughs> Isn't this also uh, true for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy universe that robots are treated mostly like equals, even if they're depressed, like Marvin? Yeah. Hmm? Wait, was Marvin a robot? I forgot if Marvin was a robot. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, I think there is equality in in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, yeah, I guess he was. Who's the sidekick to? Is it Ar- Arthur's the main character, right? Yes. Who's the Who's his best friend guy? Oh, I'm blanking on his name. I unfortunately can't help you there. <laughs> oh, I can't remember. Oh well, I need. I guess it's time that I rewatch it <laughs> and reread it. Well, um, I, I'm going to go ahead and agree with Josh that uh, just judging by how in-depth this discussion got, I, I think a machine uprising, uh, at least on some level, uh, is and quite possibly should be a legitimate concern for our future. Uh, maybe maybe not in our lifetime, but it should be something, uh, I, I guess, that we should think about even even something as innocent as automating a workforce could have catastrophic consequences for humanity as a whole down the line. Um, is there anything else that you all would like to add there? I think that was a pretty good summation right there. Yeah. You know, just embrace embrace the robots. Get your Alexa. Get, get your self-driving car. Figure out how to automate your entire life so you don't ever have to leave the couch again and you can just fade off into a, a happy existence. All right, all right. So, um, I, just to kind of wrap it up and bring it home, uh, in in the spirit of uprisings, I just wanted to ask uh, each of you. Now that we've talked about machine uprisings, do you all think that an animal uprising, such as Planet of the Apes or <laughs> James Patterson's Zoo? Either one of those. Do you, do you think that is something that we should that, that we should be concerned with in our near or distant future? I'll take it first, and uh, only if we screw up. Okay. Uh, I think that evolution is such that we right now have the unbreakable edge because we are the only species to achieve sentience, and we'll be able to tell if another species is emerging to sentience. Because they'll be the only ones talking to us. So <laughs> if we're smart, then we start handling that starting now, like coevolution with dogs and with cats. We, if you coevolve, then you don't have a problem because right. you're you're not going to evolve as a natural antagonist. So if we don't screw up and if we let evolution take its natural course, which also in this case means influencing how it happens, not genetically but in terms of making sure that we select for the right characteristics and choose those, then, yeah, I don't think there's a problem there. I'd be much more concerned about the machine uprising than the animal uprising. That said, if for some reason we ever did have a fully sentient species of animal that wasn't on our side, 
I'd have to hope it was one like the squirrel <laughs> that wouldn't be uh, all that what, threatening. What makes you think that they aren't already? That's true. I, you know what I'd be most afraid of? Sentient insects. Oh. Because they're the most prominent, and they could swarm anything at any time. You know, yeah, like, um, like a water I, bear. I, right. Yeah. <laughs> a, uh, a a recent study has shown that there are enough spiders in the world to eat, eat every human. They just don't know that. Oh. <laughs> Congratulations, Thanks. arachnophobes. Thanks for that lovely image to go to sleep on tonight. <laughs> yeah. Callie, <laughs> do you think the animal uprising is a threat? Realistically, no. However, entertaining the thought that, you know, a particular animal became sentient, I think we'd have two problems. The first problem would be whether or not they were a pet species or or not. And if they were, they probably have a lot to shit to tell us about how we treated them as pet owners or pet parents. Um, the second thing is humanity's reaction. And I just... All I can think is like Colonel Stryker and the mutant um, rebellion and X-Men is when humans feel like there's something bigger and better that's going to take over or replace them, then they get scared and they shoot first and ask questions later. So what I'm hearing is the answer to all the problems we've discussed tonight is to let our cerebral cortex override our amygdala and to let our reason and logic override our fear. Much yes. easier said than done on a collective level. What if we could program it into like a machine and have it teach us how to do it? <laughs> <laughs> so I've got this Python program called humanity.exe. <laughs> Why do you have a Python program with an exe extension? That's my because first question. My, because my mad scientist doesn't understand the first thing about Python. <laughs> okay, <laughs> continue. No, that's all I had to say. <laughs> That's all. It's not really a program. It's just oh. the word humanity written on a piece of paper that's shaped like a python. We, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. On that note, okay. <laughs> well, well now, now that we've gotten to, uh, to the end of the, uh, the discussion, I guess we have only one final order of business. And uh, who would like to kill off Jar Jar? I have one. I have one. All right. Go ahead, Callie. All right. Jar Jar, good old Jar Jar, he was around when this happened. But as luck would have it in in 2038, when Epoch ran out on the computers and it could no longer calculate time, there also happened to be a perfectly timed robot apocalypse. And at that time, uh, when the apocalypse happened, the best and most brilliant minds came together and found Jar Jar and offered them to the robots as, as a sacrifice. And they were pleased because they felt that if humans were dumb enough to create... Jar Jar Binks did already suffered enough, and they destroyed his body and uploaded his brain into the cloud. Finally. <laughs> oh, wait, is that the origin story of Clippy? Could be. <laughs> it's also it's also the uh, <laughs> it's also got kind of the uh, the ending of Chappie to it there. <laughs> Just really funny. <laughs> Spoilers. No, it's good. <laughs> All right. Oh, uh, well. Uh, on on that note, Jar Jar is dead, but we are not. Um, and this concludes the first of two episodes that I'll be hosting. So, uh, guys, I, I hope you like it. Please, um, if if you have any thoughts on on a machine uprising or an animal uprising, even uh, please please feel free. Um, hit us up at B and Q Podcast on Twitter. Uh, we are on Podbean. We are on. We are on. Uh, we are still on Google Play. Yes, we are. Okay. We are on Podbean, we are on Google Play, we are on iTunes, and uh, if you have a, a bit lengthier feedback you'd like to send us, it's uh, bnqfeedback at gmail.com. So uh, lots of ways to get in touch with us if you have anything to say on input, this discussion. Input, <laughs> Does not compute. Uh, V'ger does require the information. <laughs> so. Uh, Number five alive. Ha <laughs> ha. I love I love that movie too. Yes. By the way, um, it, it's everything that Chappie should have been, uh, but <laughs> wasn't. So uh, for Josh, thank you, and Callie. Good night and good evening. <laughs> this is JP saying uh, good night and thanks for listening.